Um, we're going to be continuing our series in the Gospel of Luke. And as we get started, kind of like we will do every week, uh, we're going to put the big picture up on the screen. So this is the outline of the Gospel of Luke. Um, we're, uh, we're in section one still, which is the coming Messiah section. And that section primarily deals with two things. First, the expectations and desires for the Messiah to come and what his kingdom is going to look like. Um, as well, Luke brings up this theme in his gospel, and that's what's in the black bar right above me. Uh, it's the, the theme of release and freedom. That When, when someone met Jesus, there was a, a, not only a personal uh, release and freedom from sin, but oftentimes Luke's gospel presents it in the realms of social inequality and economic disparity. So when somebody came to faith in that culture, uh, they were brought out of their uh, low social status and brought back into a place of honor. Think of Elizabeth, right? Elizabeth was barren, and Elizabeth wasn't able to have a child, and yet in that culture, that was considered a dishonorable thing. So when the Lord worked in her life and allowed her to get pregnant with a baby, it just brought her to a place of honor and right standing in society. <clears throat> and so as we continue to look at the Gospel of Luke, I want to start off by talking about this phrase. Um, how many of you guys have taken uh, like a sociology class or a psychology class in college? A few of you? Okay. Um, there's a phrase that's used in a lot of uh, theory classes, and it's called the medium is the message. And essentially that was coined by a guy named Marshall McLuhan. He was a Canadian professor in the 60s, and he studied a lot of social theory, um, specifically how technology changes how we hear information. Um, so it's really the interesting point that he tries to make with that phrase is that it's not only about the message that's being conveyed. What matters also with that message being conveyed is how it's conveyed and the effect that how it is conveyed has on people. So here's an example. You pick a particular mode of transportation, right? The whole goal of any mode of transportation is to get from point A to point B. That's the goal. Yet, the mode of transportation you choose tells us a lot about who you are and what you value. Okay, so we're in Portland. You choose to ride a bike. Here's the deal. This means that you're environmentally conscious. You care about getting exercise. You love showing off your Timbuktu gear. You're, you're doing your part, you know, for Mother Nature. You're, you're just going to get through the rain. It doesn't matter. You're not going to put horrible gases into the air. That's what you value if you ride a bike. Um, what does it communicate when you travel by a car for a road trip? Maybe... Um, you value time with your family. Like you want to be in a car for 15 hours with your two little kids. That sounds great. If that's what you want to do, fantastic. Um, maybe you value saving money. So it's cheaper to get gas uh, than it would be to buy a couple of plane tickets. Um, but what does it communicate when you travel by airplane? You value speed. You value efficiency. Um, in a lot of ways, you value comfort. You need to get to where you're going quickly, and you're willing to pay top dollar in order to get that done. So my wife, Nadia, and I, we moved here to Portland uh, back in January, and we used two modes of transportation to get up here. Me, since I value not spending money, I uh, kind of roped a couple of my buddies into loading up a 20-foot trailer, and another buddy had a flatbed trailer, so we put a car on that, and uh, I have a little Scion XB, and we just stocked that thing to the brim. And we had a 19-hour road trip. And for me, what I valued in that time was Saving money, so I didn't buy a U-Haul. I, I tricked some of my friends into coming up with me. And uh, we got all of our stuff here in, in a reasonable amount of time. Uh, but for Nadia and the kids, it was a completely different story. Um, I purposely book, booked them nonstop tickets from LAX to Portland. 
uh, to get there as fast as they could because we've got two little kids. I've never traveled with little kids. We're, we're going to Southern California at the end of December, so if you have any tips about traveling with little kids, let me know. Um, but we, we, I valued getting them up here quickly, and that's why we chose the mode of transportation we did. Um, but today's text has a lot to do with that phrase, the medium is the message. Uh, today's text, we actually get into the birth of Jesus. So there's so much that's been coming from this gospel. There's this anticipation, this excitement. God is starting to speak again after 400 years. And we come to kind of a climax in the story. And it, it really, it's a climax that peaks early on in the story, that Jesus is born. But the point of today is not just the fact that Jesus came. The point of today is for us to really understand how he came and why he came the way he did. So uh, open up to Luke chapter 2. If you're in your Bibles, we're going to start off in verse 1. It says this, In those days, a decree went out uh, from Caesar Augustus that all of the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So Luke transitions us in this story to introduce us to two new characters. You have Caesar Augustus and you have Quirinius. Um, So uh, Quirinius is a historical character that really allows us to know Luke's writing an orderly account, so he's going to give us historical people, real places in which this story was taking place. So uh, Quirinius really links us to that historical context, but Caesar is the important character here. Caesar's the important character because it, it, um, it, it creates a worldview, a, a society in which we learn to understand who he is and why he mattered. So uh, it, he puts it like this. Caesar sends an official decree to all the world. So that's crazy. That's literally all the known world at the time. The entire Roman Empire, he sends out this decree. And in this decree, he had a message. That message is that he wants all the world to be registered. But he uses a particular medium to to declare that message. He uses this royal decree. So with Luke's introduction of these characters also gives us a recognition of who they are. Thus far up into this point in Luke's gospel, we're very familiar with the lowly. We're familiar with Mary. We're familiar with Zechariah. We're familiar with Elizabeth. We're, we're looking at people who don't have much of a social class to really cling to. But now we're introduced to two characters who actually benefit from the injustices in society. Follow me here. So here's what the registration did, especially for Caesar. One, it allowed him to know who was underneath his rule. So you had to go uh, to wherever you were from and register with your family to, to really let Rome know who lives there. And that gives Caesar a glimpse of who he's ruling over. Okay? Second, those registrations were meant to take account for one reason. It was for taxation purposes. So the whole goal of the taxation system was to Im- impose a fee upon uh, anybody who lived underneath the Roman Empire to further the Roman Empire. So uh, the registration really reminded the known world that he was their emperor. He's the one that rules over you. So when a royal decree comes from on high, he's letting you know that, hey, I'm the ruler here. I'm the one who's in control. And then second, he, he lets them know that, hey, I'm actually over your money too. I can tell you where you put your money and how you put your means. Now, if you're a Jew, this presents a problem because it seems like God is breaking his promise. You see, back in Abraham, uh, God said to Abraham that I'm going to bless you to be a blessing. And what that looks like is three things. It mean, with, with blessing comes God's rule. It means that God's king and nobody else's. So if you're a Jew and Caesar Augustus is king, that presents a problem. Uh, it comes with being a united people uh, underneath God as their Lord. 
what you see in the first century is that people are disunified. There is social stratas that causes people to be poor and wealthy, and there's oppression, and there's a lot going on. So there's not a united people there. And then finally, uh, with that blessing comes the land in which God's kingdom would rule. So when a Jew would see that Caesar Augustus is in power, they're again reminded that God is, quote-unquote, not sitting on the throne. There's a different person sitting on the throne. But the problem just doesn't stop there practically. It actually gets worse when it comes to the spiritual condition. Here's the reason. If you were the emperor, there's uh, what's known as the imperial cult, which meant that if you're the emperor, you're actually considered a god. You're considered a lord of some sort. So not only are you the king and the ruler of it all, but you are considered God. So if you're a Jew living in that land, how much more oppressive is that? That not only are you living in the land that God intended for you to live, but you have a king who's not your king, and essentially he's the God that's not your God. To sum it up, with Caesar's medium comes Caesar's message. The royal decree for registration to all the world says this, I am Lord over you. You do as I say. So, The tone set here, and then we get introduced back to Mary and Joseph and how they respond to this decree. Pick it up in verse 3 with me. And all went to be registered, each to his own town, and to Joseph. Oh, and Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So uh, Jerry and Mo- J- uh, Jerry, Ben and Jerry, we'll call him Ben and Jerry. How's that sound? Uh, Mary and Joseph uh, gets the message and they go uh, and they do what the emperor tells them to do. They go back to their hometown. So they left Nazareth and they headed back down into Bethlehem because he was from David's household. Now, um, Bethlehem is again a 70 mile south journey from where they were. So if you're Mary, you've actually made this trek three times in the gospel now. You came to see Elizabeth when she was pregnant. Then you went all the way back home. And now you're making this trek nine months pregnant on a horse. That sounds awesome, doesn't it, ladies? You just want to travel 70 miles horseback and nine months pregnant. Now here comes some tension in the story, right? They get there, and it comes time for Mary to deliver the baby. Now, Again, there's no schedule or scheduled C-sections in this culture, okay? Like, water breaks, baby comes. That's how it works. So you can't plan, but at this point in time, uh, Mary uh, chooses to give birth in a place that's very unexpected. Verse 7 says this, that, that she gave birth essentially where the animals lived. She didn't put her baby in a crib of some sort. She swallowed him in swaddling cloths and then laid the firstborn son, the God of the universe, into a feeding trough for animals. So if you were to imagine this, an ancient house in Israel has two stories, okay? Think of it like a simple little box. On the bottom level is where the animals were kept. So you'd have the cattle, the oxen, uh, the sheep, whatever pigs, whatever that you had as cattle, or not cattle, livestock, that's the word. I'm from Southern California, so I don't know what that is. Um, All the livestock is in that first floor. And the purpose of them being in the first floor is because when the family lives on the floor above them, the heat from the animals actually heats up the house. So um, when we see this story, we're so often like used to seeing that uh, 
This is Mary. She's nine months pregnant. She's got nowhere to go. She's knocking on doors in the middle of the night, and it's raining, and she's pregnant, and everybody's saying, nope, we don't have any room for you. That's technically not what happened. She was with her family because if the decree went out to all the world, that the all of the world had to be registered, that means all of the family came together, and there just wasn't room. So she went down to where the animals were. Animals were considered unclean to give birth because it was an unclean process. So that's why she was uh, where she was. But if the medium is the message, then the Messiah that the Old Testament has prophesied about, the king who's going to come and change everything, shows up in a barn. That's not where you would expect the king to show up. He's supposed to show up in the throne. He's supposed to show up ruling and reigning. He's not supposed to show up as a baby boy, but he does. So thus far in the story, we've seen Caesar Augustus, one type of Lord, send a message. And now with Jesus being born in a manger, he sends a very different message. Let's pick up the story still in verse 8. Here we go. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was, an, uh, there, uh, there was with the angel, rather, a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So in contrast to Caesar Augustus being the ruler over all the world, where he sends this universal decree for all of his people to follow, you have... Uh, this baby showing up, and then you have this crazy juxtaposition of humility and glory happening at the same time. You have the humility of the Son of God choosing to come as a man, but then you have an even bigger decree, an even bigger announcement. This blows any Instagram announcement, social media announcement away that that a baby's been born. Angels show up and sing the praise of this baby boy. It's a universal broadcast. It's greater than anything Caesar could have ever tried. So God sends this message to an unlikely group of people, shepherds. Now, sheep are dumb animals. I'm from L.A., but I know that they're dumb, okay? Sheep are dumb animals. And oftentimes, shepherds were seen as not very intelligent people. They were um, those who were seen as peasants in society. Uh, They really were those first century peasants who were poor but watched over their flock But these are the people that receive the announcement of the birth of Jesus. Again, it's very interesting that these are the people that God chooses to tell. He doesn't go and tell a governor. He doesn't go and tell a king. God shows up and tells the shepherds, people who don't have any value in society. And he says this, guys, a Savior's born. There's good news. The term gospel comes from that idea of good news. There's good news, guys. The Savior of the, of the world has shown up, and he's in the city of David. He's actually right over the hill. You're in the region of Bethlehem. He's right over there. But don't look for him in the emperor's palace. Don't look for him seating on a throne. Look for him in swaddling cloths and in the feeding trough of animals. And as if, if one angel wasn't enough, then a multitude show up and just start praising God, declaring his worth and his value, glory to God in the highest, and specifically, peace 
coming to those with whom he is pleased. That idea of peace is that idea of shalom where when God brings his peace, he's going to bring his total rule and total reign. Whenever you think of peace and shalom, just think of the idea of the lion laying down with the lamb. That the predator and the prey are no longer that way. In God's kingdom, we are all going to be existing together in his peace. So if I'm a shepherd, I'm wondering, how am I going to respond to this? I don't normally have a, a, you know, a shift, so to speak, with my sheep, and angels show up. So what do I do? Let's see what they do. Verse 15, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, um, which the Lord made known to us. And then they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, uh, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, and it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So all the shepherds gather together. You get that one leader dude who's like, we're going to do this. So we're going to charge this mountain. We're going to go over the hill, and we're going to see this baby. They booked it. They found the house. They got to the livestock quarters. They were frantically searching for the Savior of the world, and then they see him. So they found Jesus in this manger, and they share this incredible news that, Mary, Joseph, you don't believe this yet. Well, you might because you probably had some very supernatural things happen to you. But angels just showed up and told us that the king of the world is born. Could you imagine Mary's heart? That when she says that she pondered these things in her heart, could you imagine the sense of peace being at, in the middle, essentially, of what God's doing? To be a, a woman and to be a virgin and yet to be with child brought her so much shame and so much dishonor. And yet, God has been extremely faithful to her throughout to say, no, but I'm with you in this. I'm with you in this. What another confirmation of God's goodness towards Mary that Mary would see, I'm not feeling crazy. This isn't a crazy thing. God is in the midst of it. So the result is that everybody is in wonder. Everybody is in awe. All are astonished. She treasures up these words in her heart. What God said is true. And the shepherds go away glorifying God. They got to be a part of the Savior of the world coming. You didn't think that was going to happen on your night shift, did you? But it happened. However, I think they were astonished not only because Jesus came, but because why he came and how he came. What king starts his rule and reign as an infant? What what king is born in an animal stable? What king's crib is a feeding trough? Our king. You see, this is the story of the birth of our Savior Jesus. But what this brings up theologically is the doctrine of incarnation. Incarnation is just a fancy Latin term that means taking on flesh. So we see Jesus taking on flesh and becoming human. So if the medium is the message, Jesus is communicating this by how he enters our world. I've come to live in your world. I've come to live inside the human experience. And I've come to relate to you Not that I need to relate to you, but so that you can relate to me. He understands what life is like. He understands our experience, our joys, our pain, our heartbreak, our tragedies. He can relate because he experiences it. So here's what this means for you and I when it comes to this story. We have a Savior who has chosen to enter into our brokenness, 
in order to set us free from that brokenness that holds us captive. This is what our Savior has done. The, the tagline for the series of Luke is release the captive, right? So we can see that, and we're going to see characters all throughout the story who are released from their social woes and from the economic disparities that they see. But you and I have to read this story too, that we are the captives that God is setting free. It's not just those we see in this book, but it really is our lives too. So what does the incarnation then mean for yours and my daily reality as followers of Jesus? This is a very famous story, and we may all know this story, and it's okay that we know this story. But it's not just okay for us to know the story. We have to know how this story makes sense for you and for me. So the first thought I want to share with us is this, is that the incarnation shares this message. We have a good God who cares about us and relates to the struggles of our lives. He's chosen to get involved in our reality. And this is proof that God cares for us. We see this to be true in all of life. Okay, I've been a dad for four and a half years now, and it's one of the greatest joys of my life. I want to care for my kiddos and whatever they need and whatever they're, they're struggling in throughout their life, I want to help them. But what it means for me to be caring as a father is involvement. If I'm not involved in my kids' lives, I don't care about them. I think about Proverbs where it says that a, a child should delight in the discipline of God because the discipline of God actually reminds them of his great care for them and his great love for them. So I, I want to be actively engaged in their reality because I need to help them. For those of you with young kids, you know a two-year-old and a four-year-old are fantastic at conflict resolution. Am I right? They're, they're great at it. So I need to be involved. I need to, to get in and help them figure out who had the toy first. Because when I do that, I'm helping them know that, God's, that God, because I'm the father figure, which means I represent who God is in their lives. Talk about responsibility, okay? And then from that, I get to tell them, guys, let's work out our problems together. Let me help you where you actually can't help yourself yet. But here's what makes me an even better father. Involvement means I can relate to my kids. As my kids grow up, I want to be involved because I've been through what they've been through. I remember navigating the insecurity of elementary school and junior high. Now, I couldn't put words to it at the time, but I remember those feelings and those feelings of inadequacy or whatever. I remember navigating the waters of, of high school and college. I remember having my first job and figuring out how to balance. Okay, now, now I feel like I don't have any time, but back then I looked, had all the time in the world. But just to, to, to figure out how I can help them navigate through those things, because I've been there. I, I remember working through family and relational conflict. So when my kids experience that same reality, I want them to know that I can relate to them because I've been through it. Maybe let's put it this way. It's always better to talk to someone who's been through what you've been through, right? It's always better. Whether you've lost a baby or whether you are taking care of an aging parent, those people who really understand are the ones who's been through it. They're able to empathize. They're able to help you because they've, they've walked in your shoes, right? So if the medium is the message, if the way that Jesus came, come, has come matters just as much that he came, 
Jesus is telling us that he's walked in our shoes, that he understands the reality of living in the human body. You see, we do ourselves a disservice in the church because we look at Jesus in the Gospels and we go, yeah, but he's God. Sure, he can be loving. Sure, he can be kind. Sure, he can heal people. He's God. May I present to you that, yes, he's God, but he's also a human in flesh following the Holy Spirit's leading. Where Luke actually says that he becomes the example of the human experience for us to follow. That we just can't look at Jesus anymore and say, okay, he's God. He's kind of got the God card that he can pull out at any time. No, he's also a human who understands you and me. He knows what it's like to resist sin. Hebrews says that he resisted sin so much that he actually shed his own blood. So that the encouragement to the church and the Hebrew church was, hey, you keep fighting. You keep fighting because God fought. He knows what it's like to be the source of ridicule and shame. His mom was considered the whore, remember? That's who his mom was. He knows what it's like to grow up with a mom who has a sketchy reputation. He knows how to handle interpersonal conflict. He lived with 12 grown men for three years. There's going to be conflict in that environment. It's just going to happen. He had countless arguments with religious leaders. He understands there's going to be some conflict. He knows how to, how to relate to be able to do anything and everything. He knows how to relate to people in power because he was the God of the universe. He knows how to relate to the lowly because he became a human. You see, if God is God, he could accomplish anything he wants to in any way, right? You guys have taken philosophy courses in college, and you have that cool philosophy prof getting up and say, could God make a rock so big he couldn't lift it? It's a dumb question. God can do anything that he wants to at any time. But he chose to send his son as a human being. He could have changed human history with a word. He could have said something, just like he spoke creation into existence with his very word. God could have done anything by any means to save people. But he doesn't. He sends the second person of the Trinity in human form to not only understand what it's like for us to walk in his shoes, but he also died on our behalf. And this was the plan of God. So, for Caesar Augustus, one Lord in this story, the medium is the message. He decrees from his throne whatever he wants, and his subjects do it. He doesn't care personally about the people he rules over. Uh, He wanted something from them, and he got it. For Jesus, the medium is also the message. Jesus cares for us, the people he rules over. He doesn't command from his throne. He leaves it. He leaves his throne in order for us to understand who he is. He didn't want anything from us, but instead he came to live in our shoes, uh, get into the problems that we couldn't fix on our own, and prove that he cares for us and understands our reality. The incarnation shares this message too, that Jesus meets us in our current state of brokenness. What shows up in the incarnation is that God has initiated us. He doesn't wait for us to save ourselves and clean ourselves up in order to to meet up with him. He meets us right where we are at. The incarnation is above all a picture of God's grace towards us, right? God's grace towards us. Regardless of who you are and what you've done, Jesus has come to meet you where you are. But here's the question I want to ask myself And I want us to ask as a church, 
Are we willing to allow God to meet us where we are at? For some of you, maybe you're not a follower of Jesus, but that could mean you placing your faith in Christ today and becoming a Christian today. Like God enters your reality today. Maybe you've been thinking that in order for, for God to receive you, that you've got to change things or make yourself better. But the reality of this text is that grace comes to change you. You don't show up that way. God shows up in order to change you. God is meeting you where you're at. God is saying, I can free you from the sin that you try to fix on your own. Grace is working on your behalf. But you need to respond by accepting grace. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, the message is still the same. The incarnation reminds us that God is still pursuing us where we're at. If I'm honest with you, I'm a Christian that can believe that grace has an end point. That at some point in time, my performance is going to carry me through to the next level of my Christianity. If I ever forget grace, I forget Christianity. It... it, (laughs) I can honestly believe that there's times if I work harder, I'm going to change. I can only change because God is at work in my life. That's the only reason why. I'm still in need of God's grace. But here's the message. For Caesar Augustus, the medium is the message, right? He doesn't pursue his people where they're at. Uh, He expects them to come and do what he says because he decrees it from his mighty throne. For Jesus, the medium is also the message. He purposely leaves his throne to pursue the people who are far from him in order to turn them into the people that he wants them to be. And finally, the incarnation shares this message. Jesus is our example of how we are to be like him in this world. So Jesus has come to release us from our own sin, our own slavery, our own bondage, in order so that we might be those very same people for those we come in contact with. Whatever God has done in you, he wants to do through you. Whatever God has done in you, he wants to do through you. Jesus has entered into your world so that you can enter into somebody else's world to demonstrate who he is. Like a police officer who's trained their whole lives in the academy to to run towards crisis when others don't. Like like a fireman who's trained to run into a burning building. Being a Christian means that you run towards brokenness when you see it. In your own life and also in the lives of others. So if you recognize brokenness in your own life, recognize that it's the Holy Spirit of God at work in your life trying to draw you in. Don't resist that. Don't run away from that. Follow that. And at the same exact time, When we experience brokenness in other people's lives, that should be the red flag for us to run into that situation. So Nadia and I lived right outside of uh, Los Angeles, California, in a suburb called Moore Park. And uh, Moore Park is essentially one of those quintessential suburbs. Um, It's a bedroom community, and most people leave that to go into the city to work. And so we moved in there about two years ago. We start getting to know our neighbors, and um, we have... uh, when we first arrived, I went over to a New Year's Eve party at the guy's house next to us. And um, after I had left, there was a lot of yelling and cursing and fighting, and the police were called. And that was literally probably 30 days into our lease. So right away, I realized there was something going on in the house next door. And right across the street, you, ever ha- you have those neighbors who yell, but you also have those neighbors who yell across the street that you can hear in your living room. 
those were our neighbors. And um, we got some time to hang out with them in front of our, our house, and our kids got time to hang out, which was great because we got to know them and their family. And then months later, I'm, ch- I'm talking to the husband, and, and he says that my wife's cheating on me and that they're getting a divorce because of it. In that moment, I had two options. Sorry to hear that, bro. Got to go inside. I got dinner to make. Or what's going on? What's going on in your world? By God's grace, when I saw brokenness that time, I followed God's grace. So over time, I kept checking in with him and eventually had the opportunity to tell him about who Jesus was, that that even though his wife was leaving him, he had a God who actually would never would leave him. And that same house where the New Year's Eve party happened and they eventually moved out, there was a new couple that moved in. I came home from, from work one day and I just hear yelling and screaming next door and I run to an open garage and I see them both throwing stuff at each other, like literal like screws and tools. They're just going at it. And I say, guys, guys, what's going on? The, the wife kind of comes to and then runs away and then I get about 20 minutes with the husband to say like, dude, what's going on, man? How come you guys are fighting? And by God's grace again in that moment, I pursued the brokenness that I saw. Now, here's the deal. I'm not saying this because I'm saying Steve's awesome and always listens to God, okay? I don't. Oftentimes, I ignore it. Oftentimes, I don't do anything about the brokenness that I see. But if I look back and I remember those two times, I remember that, that God has entered into my brokenness so that I can enter into somebody else's brokenness and help and serve and love. There's times where I think it's too costly, times where I think it's too busy, uh, times where I think it's too risky, uh, but I have those thoughts running through my head. But if the medium is the message, Jesus came and entered into my brokenness so that I can then go and enter into somebody else's. John says that he was the God who came and dwelt among us. He's the word of God who became flesh and dwelt among us. That means he lives, he resides amidst the brokenness. So we get to do this to the watching world. We get to eat with those who are far from God, vacation with them, uh, invite them over, and so cool when they invite you over because then you get an opportunity to be in their world. You see, for Caesar, the medium is the message for him. He doesn't get personally involved in the lives of broken people. He commands them what to do regardless of how they feel. But for Jesus... The medium is the message. He chooses to dwell with us in our brokenness so that you and I can dwell with others in theirs. Yes, Jesus has come, and that's massive. He's come to save us from sin. He's come to save you and I from our own brokenness today. God is at work in our lives, and yet it matters much, much more how he came. He came in order for us to relate to him, for us to really know that he cares for you, The incarnation shows us that that God meets us where we're at and we don't have to clean up our act. We don't have to be better. We don't have to be performance-driven in order to be with God. And then the incarnation shows us that we get to dwell with broken people in and around us just like Jesus has come to do that with us. So we're going to sing. We're going to respond. But as you come to the table, I want to encourage you of this. Though it is the bread and the juice. It represents the body and blood of our broken Savior. He was broken so that he can take our brokenness away. And the only way that you can do that is if you take time with God to process what he's doing in your reality. 
So as we take communion, I want to encourage you just to have that time to process with God. Where's your brokenness? What is God doing in you? And just to comfort your heart and remind you that he's with you in it. Let me pray for us.